Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm Nara Wang, and my guest for episode 18 is one of the most accomplished sports broadcasters around. He's covered just about everything in his long and illustrious career and is now a play-by-play voice on college football and basketball and the occasional NFL game for Fox Sports, Tim Brando. Tim, it's a thrill to have you on the show. Thank you, Nara. It's great to be with you. And as we just were catching up a little bit with one another, our paths uh, should have crossed by now. But uh, I'm glad that they have today. It's good to be with you. I'm glad to have you on. It is amazing. I've been in the business a long time. You've obviously been in the business a lot longer. And yet somehow (laughs) this is the first time we're actually crossing paths. But it's great to have you on. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast, you can find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Subscribe and rate on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and more. Or go to the website Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts. For me, you can find and follow me on Twitter to get all of my takes on the Trojans or sports in general at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Tim, any social media or other things you want to get out there that the people know about? On Instagram, you can go to Timmy B on Fox. And on Twitter, I'm at Tim Brando. And anyone that does follow me, I think would probably tell you that angst, anger, and bitterness, plus some love and affection can be found at any point in time at either location. (laughs) I do have an old Facebook spot. I don't directly deal with it. My daughter, Tiffany, who handles a lot of my social media, she will post things at the old Tim Brando Show Facebook location. And every now and then I'll write a dissertation about something that requires more than 140 so characters, and I'll go there to do that. But I do engage with fans. I'm not one of these elitist play-by-play guys from the big network that doesn't want to talk or have dialogue with people, but I do now I have a uh, strong viewpoint in that I'll engage, but the moment the snark begins, you're gone. I'll block you as quickly as I'll say hello to you. So I guess maybe that's part of my generational viewpoint. I've always felt it's social media for a reason, meaning that we should try to be social. We should try to be kind to one another. And if someone walks up to me in an airport and uh, approaches me, I'm going to be kind to them and hopefully they'll be kind in return. And, And you do get that a lot of times in social media. And every now and then, if there is a disagreement, I've also found that if there is a disagreement on social media, if you do have a little bit of dialogue, sometimes someone that really has a problem with your take might begin to understand. And then you, you actually develop a stronger relationship sometimes with people that disagree with you. But sadly, given the times we're in today, the, Hey, you're a blank, you're a this or that comes up. And when that's, when that happens, you're done. I made a joke on Twitter just the other day, Nara. I said, I'm not sure if I block more people after a Saturday night telecast or if uh, on Monday when I put out my top 10 because they take umbrage (laughs) to what I said either during the game about their team or maybe where I ranked them or didn't rank them in my top 10. 
people just take everything so personally now. You know, the, the issues in our culture have seeped into sports. And um, that's problematic for guys my age because I got into this business, particularly the sports end of it, in large measure because I thought it was the last bastion of uh, fun and togetherness. You know, and and sadly, it seems that political viewpoints have made their way into sports issues more oftentimes than not. And it's made everyone so much more surly. You know, I love the passionate fan that has anger, angst and bitterness because he thinks his team uh, or her team should be ranked higher. That's not the issue. It's when people actually believe that you have an axe to grind with their team. And I've oftentimes said a viewer of a college football game, as he's watching it or she's watching it, always has a libation in their hand. The first thing they get pissed at is their coach. The second thing they get pissed at are the referees. And once they've exhausted them, they move to the announcers. We're next. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the way it works. But I do think it makes for an entertaining um, follow. If your fans are so inclined, I'd love to have them. All right, there you go. Tim Brando will engage with you on Twitter or Instagram, so follow him. The Everything USC podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. The football season is in full swing, and while you might not be at the games this year, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Do you think the Jets will go 0 16? Are the Bengals or Jaguars winning another game this season? If you feel you know the answers, those are just some of the things you can bet on at Bet Online. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Before going into the big win versus Wazoo and looking forward to the battle for LA bragging rights against UCLA, Tim, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what it's been like broadcasting games during a pandemic. You were at the Big East tournament when the basketball season got shut down in March. And unlike my guest on the previous episode, Petros Papadakis, you've been traveling to do games on site. What has your experience been like in this crazy year of 2020? I'll begin with March the 12th because uh, that's a day that I'll never forget. And if you look a little further into my uh, career, you'll notice that in 2008, I did the SEC tournament in Atlanta when in the middle of uh, overtime of a college basketball game, an F2 tornado hit the Georgia Dome and forced the suspension of play with about three and a half minutes left in the overtime between Mississippi State and Alabama. It was sort of a poor man's version of the earthquake for Al Michaels in San Francisco in the World Series back in the 80s. It was that kind of moment for us while we were on the air. It turned into a telethon of news and with CNN joining our our Raycom telecast. Back in those days, the championship was on CBS, and I did that with Al McGuire and later Bill Raftery, but I was doing the rest of the tournament on Raycom Sports, and it was just an unbelievable night that night, and the changes that had to be made before the SEC championship, they moved it over to the Georgia Tech facility and had limited 
fan base. I think they allowed 400 people in there because they didn't want, you know, the Kentucky fans to have a, a bigger uh, advantage than normal because they usually buy up all the tickets to the tournament. But I kind of remembered going through that when we were told at halftime on March 12th, and we were the only game going. Just before they were about to play in Charlotte, they called off the ACC. Just before they were going to play in uh, Nashville, where the SEC was, they stopped. But all the games were on up until about five minutes before the tip. Big Ten did the same thing in Indianapolis. But in New York, which was the epicenter of the virus, for whatever reason, the mayor had told uh, Val Ackerman, this issue is up in Westchester County. You're fine. Go ahead and play. So we tipped off and we played a half of basketball between Creighton and St. John's. And it was a hell of a game. But we were all surprised. I think when we came on the air and Rob Stone threw it to me, I remember saying, we welcome you to a surreal setting here at the world's most famous arena. And while the quarterfinals have been called off at all of these other conference championships, for now, and I remember saying it exactly like this, for now, we play on in the Big East. I really was, I couldn't believe we were playing. I really couldn't. I mean, I was happy to have the gig. We got a game to call, but you couldn't start the game without your tone being, I think, somewhat surprised that you were actually playing, given everything that was out there. You know, the Gobert thing had happened the night before. All of a sudden, we're finding out as we're going on the air, the guys in the truck are saying, okay, well, they called it off at the SEC. They called it off at the ACC. They called it off at the Big Ten. We're playing. I mean, until the guys came out on the floor and were introduced, we didn't think we were going to be playing. So that happened. And at halftime, I'm walking out. My phone's blowing up. Bill Hemmer is a big-time friend of mine. We've known each other for 20-plus years since he worked on local TV in Cincinnati. And he's got an afternoon show on Fox News. And he was like, Timmy, I wanna, I'm going to send a car. You know, you're on top of the, a, a huge news story here. You're the last game playing. You guys were the, I'm gonna, I want you to come up and talk about the, what this means for sports. You know, at this point, the NCAA was – the tournament was not off. The NCAA tournament right. was still on at that point. But you kind of thought that everything would be canceled, you know. And by the time I got there, the decision to cancel it was made. So that was bizarre. And then hustling out of there the next morning, I thought to myself, okay, you know, I'm done. My season's over. I think I had two more games to do, and that was it. All right. So my season basically was over, and I was about to go into my offseason anyway. I play a lot of golf in the spring and summer. And my thoughts drifted to, okay, well, what, what's the time? Well, I mean, August? Okay. Well, maybe by then we'll be okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. It's self-preservation. You know, you think it's self-preservation uh, at some point as you're flying home. But then I got home and you saw everything that was it, how, how much worse it got. And the lifestyle impact, once I got home, I thought to myself, and I've got a wife with pre-existing issues. She's six, she just turned 65. She was 64 then. We're the same age. And I live on a golf course, but I play with a lot of guys that are my age or older. And I'm like, I really don't think I should be playing golf. You know, I, I don't think, I, and I didn't. I didn't play golf for 80 plus days. And I live on a golf course and it was hot. I worked out a lot. I walked in our neighborhood. I did my 15,000 step day. You know, I did speed walking, which I normally do. And I just sort of prayed that we would get things worked out. But the closer we got to the start of the, the football season, seemingly the, 
the worse it got, you know, spiking here, spiking there. And uh, I did know enough about college football, though, and the situation intercollegiate athletics is in to know that they would exhaust every opportunity to play. Because unlike the NFL, college football doesn't have the war chest of television revenue to offset the losses that would cost so many sports to be thrown out and really maybe put the entire athletic departments in peril. And so college football had to be played. I really felt that it had to be played some way, somehow. So I remained positive about it and uh, positive that they would find a way to play. You know, the interesting thing there about that was not everyone in my profession, that being sports media, felt similarly. And it did become a political issue. It became a very strong political issue. Merely hoping that college football would be played meant you would get pushback from those saying you care less about human life, okay? That if you really believe that college football needs to be played, you somehow don't mind young men being put into harm's way uh, that could perish from participating. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, That was not the case at all. I simply felt that hundreds of millions of dollars being lost would cost intercollegiate athletics to such a great extent that they could not afford not to play. That was my point. Now we get started. Okay, as it turns out, we get started. The science does change. It is worse on the West Coast in, in the upper Midwest. So their determination was not to play. But then the science changed again, and the rapid testing came about. And, you know, the Pac-12 is where that, that information came from, really. So now they, they say, we're going to go. And we're going to start, but we're only going to be able to go at said date. The decisions that were being made from the conferences were so scattered. And they had been telling us all summer long, they being the Power Five conferences, oh, we're talking to our brethren in the Power Five once a week. We're doing Zooms. It's never been more collegial than it is now. We're sharing information and sharing the science. But when push came to shove and it was time to make a decision, they all did something different. Every one of them did something different. They couldn't agree on anything, which is sadly what college football has become. Right. What's new, right? Yeah, what's new? And it and exposed, again, why I believe that college football needs a czar in the worst way, and the entire infrastructure of college football needs an overhaul. And I hope that through COVID this year, because it has been challenging, in some cases exhilarating, there's been a lot of positives, I think, that have come from us getting through to this point, you know, on the doorstep of the finish line of the regular season. But it also, I think, exposed, opened wounds that college football has and needs to be rectified. So I I hope that in a lot of ways, we've learned a, a number of lessons about it. But to your point about how we broadcast the games, and I have the utmost respect for Petros and Alex Faust who've been doing their games from a studio setting, Petros knows the Pac-12 like the palm of his hand and makes it sound as close to being there as you can possibly make it. Alex is brand new to football. He's been doing hockey, and he's a great young broadcaster, has a super future. But he and others, I think being in the studio to do it, this is just an opinion. I think being in the studio with the guys that are producing and directing, albeit in another room, I think that is advantageous 
to those guys that are doing games from their homes, which I think is being done a lot at ESPN. Because at least when you're working with the guy next to you and if there's plexiglass there and you're in a studio, you know when he's talking and he knows when you're talking. When you're doing a game from your house, you're not going to know when you, your partner is ready to say something. Yeah. You, you can't seem. I thought Marchand in the New York Post last week made a great – Andrew Marchand made a great – point somebody was saying oh these games you guys could do somebody on twitter said something like you you guys could just do this from your homes you don't need to go to the game and marchand wrote back if you think that not being at the game matters then you're not listening closely enough and that's absolutely the truth and it shows up especially on these games where guys are doing it from home because they talk over one another plus the delay in what they're seeing and what they're calling is clear to the viewer at home. I mean, if you're watching closely, very you clear. Can tell. You're a broadcaster, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So for us, we were told, okay, Tim, you and Spencer are going to be among our crews that we'll be sending out to games. And man, I was ecstatic about that because, you know, the analyst at the game gets to see all 22 with his own eyes. When I'm calling the game, I'm not watching television monitors. I'm watching the field. Now, when the ball is not in play, after the play's over, I go to the monitors because I want to see the graphics. I want to see what the people at home are seeing. I also want to be able to tee up my analyst for the replay if need be, if, it needs, if he needs to be teed up. Or if he doesn't, just shut up. But I want to direct my attention to the monitors when the play is, uh, is over. But one of the unique aspects of our broadcast team is Jake Jolivet, our producer, and our director, Dustin Denty, are not on site. They are in Los Angeles, and they are doing it with fiber optics and satellite, and there is a little bit of a delay that they may have to deal with. It's more for them than it is for us. We're calling what we're seeing in real time. But the challenge, obviously, can be making sure that we're in sync with one another because of that little delay that they're having to deal with. A skeleton crew in the booth, which is sometimes challenging, we had to make a decision, those of us. See, in the NFL, the booths are so big, they were built for television. You know, they, these new stadiums yeah. built TV booths to NFL requirements. But, you know, in these old stadiums, whether it's at Boulder or in the Pac-12 or whether it's uh, Oklahoma, by example, we were just there last weekend. It's high, it's tight quarters. And so we had to make a decision. Actually, Gus Johnson and I both talked about it in the summer because we knew we were going to have to give up uh, with the protocols and the six feet of distance. We were going to have to give up either our talent stats guy or our spotter. And, um, you know, we, we just sort of compared notes. And I said, well, Gus, for me, it's got to be, I've got to have my spotter. I mean, I've got to have the extra pair of eyes. The stats guy for us is being done remotely from home. He's got a number of monitors to see the plays and to see the punt, and he is giving us 47-yard punt, five-yard return on the Internet. So I'm turning to a monitor to see that information. Okay, but your spotter has to be with you. I mean, when you're up at that level, I mean, I know who's the quarter. I know the quarterback. I have my depth chart in front of me, but if the ball is tipped, who tipped it? You know, I need to, you know, you're going you're gonna to need help with that. There's yeah. six arms up in the air. 
you need that guy with Binox next to you helping you with that. And so I made the determination, and Gus did too, of going in that route. I'm sure Joe Davis did as well. His dad, I think, spots for him. So, you know, he wants to see his pop. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that was what we decided to do. It's different. I've oftentimes said our business and trust, I think it's very difficult for young broadcasters now, Mara, because as you're trying to develop a career, trust with the coaching staffs, with the offensive and defensive coordinators, and with the head coach is so important. And now, if you're a rookie to our business, you're not getting to meet anybody. Yeah. Except on Zoom calls. And for me, I've been in this business for four decades. So there's very few guys that I'm going to talk to that I don't already know, and they know me. But for younger guys, I think it's really hard. But you do get what you need out of the Zoom. I think there's some positives that have come from the technology that we now know we have and the options that are afforded us through uh, Zoom and FaceTime and that kind of thing. But it makes it unique, and we're doing our best to deliver the same kind of broadcast that we would normally deliver, even though that personal touch hasn't been there. I think only one time this year have we actually gone to a football facility and met with players and offensive and defensive coordinators. And that makes it tough because that, for me, that's the most enjoyable part of the job, getting to meet and talk to the people that you're, you know, you're reporting on. That's what makes the job so much fun, personalizing it. We're all storytellers and the the ability to tell the story as well as deliver the play-by-play is hampered when you can't meet in person with the people that you're broadcasting about. And um, that's been the challenge, I think, for all of us. Now, ours, I think I would take my option over Petros's any day or these guys, uh, so many of them that, especially at ESPN, I know they're doing it from their homes. They're doing the best that they can. I certainly hope and pray that you know, this is one of those one-off years and we can get back close to what we used to do and, and have to do. But sadly, I think in a lot of ways, what happens in situations like this in our business is once we're able to pull it off, once we're asked to do something that we haven't done before and we're, we're successful at it, yep. it's a means to, to justify cutting budgets even more uh, moving forward. I think at our place, I know our people, our leaders value the game and the game first. And so I'm confident that we will get back to what we've been doing in the past at our place because I, I really believe that. But listen, our industry was contracting even before COVID got here. And we were going to see more remote broadcasting in the future anyway. I think this just sped it up. We were doing it more quickly now than they originally thought. But I do think the top-tier games need to be given the kind of treatment that network broadcasting is, is all about. And um, well, it's one of the great things about working at Fox, I think, is that the, the game always comes first at our place. So, you know, that's my thought and, and a little opinion to go with it. But it's been a, a year unlike any other. And I'm writing a book, not a memoir or, or autobiography, but I'm writing a book about the how-tos and what-not-to-dos in broadcasting, in sports broadcasting. Okay. And what happened to me in Atlanta at the SEC tournament, what happened to me at the Garden in 2020 at the Big East tournament, and this college football season, let me tell you, I'm glad that I waited through 2020 because 
I've got three new chapters, you know, <laughs> off of what happened just this past year. <laughs> yeah. It has changed a lot of the ways people have done business, not just obviously in sports media, but across the country, across the board. Yeah. And if I just said, all right, like you mentioned, there have been some positives. There have been new innovations that have come out of this. Pick one thing you think that is the best innovation that has come out of dealing with broadcasting during a pandemic. Oh, man. Let me see. A positive that's come from it. Well, we've, we've learned, like I said, for me anyway, learning how to use the technology to get the breaking information. I don't know that I, you know, I'm one of these, if anybody's uh, that's ever worked with me, you've talked to, uh, they'll tell you Brando's boards are, are unbelievable. You know, they're handwritten, they're big. I mean, they're huge. And the older I get, the bigger they become. I put it in a big portfolio case and people, when I get on air, airplanes, think I'm a, an architect you know, or a painter, yeah. one or the other. And um, there's just enough room in the overhead bin for me to get it in, okay? <laughs> and if not, I have to ask the flight attendant to, can I slide this in there next to your stuff? You know, maybe if I'm on a regional jet, you know, it helps to be a platinum flyer too, you know? I mean, yeah. I, I joke I'm more platinum than a Michael Jackson album I've been flying for so long. <laughs> but anyway, using information off of the internet to help prepare for my games, I think is because when you're not meeting with everybody in person, you got to go to other sources to get your information. And I now, and I used to never do this. I used to always, everything was written. Now I'm, I'm getting a lot of information off of the, the internet from trusted sources, obviously, but I'm doing a little bit of copying off of the internet. Okay. Some, from some strong information people. And then a little tape and onto my board. So it's a combination. If you look at my board now, it's like, okay, well, he used a computer here. Oh, but he's writing it there. So I've got this um, amalgamation of information okay. that is coming from different sources. And I never did that until really this year. And I did it because I felt like I'm one of these guys that 75% of what's on that board never makes air. But I want to have it. I've always, I've always told broadcasters, there is no substitute for preparation. You deliver a confident broadcast because you know you've got that information. You may you're, Now, your judgment during the game is to know that just because you have it, you don't have to use it. But I want as much as I can sandwich in, and I think that would probably be the, the thing that jumps out to me that has forced me to do something a little bit different than I have in past years. It's great evolution of the boards for Tim Brando in 2020. <laughs> I'm still a work in progress, yeah. It always should be, right? You're always yeah. supposed to evolve and progress as things go. Yeah. yeah. Of course, this is the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Nara Wang. My guest today is longtime broadcaster, now call and play-by-play -play for Fox Sports, Tim Brando. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, you can subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and more. Or go to the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, or on social media, find us at Believe Podcast. For me directly, I'm on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Tim, let the people know where they can connect with you. At Tim Brando on Twitter and Timmy B on Fox on Instagram.
This is Dane Bland, Olympic gold medalist and head coach of the USC women's beach volleyball team. And you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. And now let us talk about the big 38-13 win the USC Trojans had against the Washington State Cougars. Both teams had missed games, USC one week, Wazoo two, due to COVID issues. And so there was a wonder if either team would come out rusty. Well, Wazoo might have. USC did not. Jumped all over the Cougars to a 28-0 first quarter lead on the strength of four Keaton Slovis to Amon Ross St. Brown touchdown passes that tied an FBS record for touchdown catches in a quarter and tied the USC record for touchdown receptions in a game by Robert Woods. And you thought, oh, for sure St. Brown's going to break it. He ended up not getting another one. Tyler Vaughn's added another touchdown catch midway through the second quarter to make the lead 35-0. And the Trojans cruised on in from there. Keaton Slovis had easily his best game of the season. Even though the stats might not have shown it, he'd had big stats in other games, but didn't look great in this one. 287 yards in the five TDs, which tied the school record for TD passes in a game. He did have to leave the game briefly, though, when he got sacked and stripped of the ball and fumbled it. Got his own fumble back, but appeared to hurt his left wrist or hand. Sat out a little bit. Matt Fink had to come in, but then Slovis came back in, even though maybe he didn't need to at that point. It was a blowout in the game, but he did come back in and played a little bit. USC, however, with the big lead, you thought, okay, let's establish a running game. They could not run the ball at all. 20 rushes for just five yards. Now, part of that is because Slovis had negative 20 off of three sacks, but not a good day in trying to salt the game in the air raid offense by running. The defense, however, was great. They harassed the freshman quarterback for Washington State, Jaden Delora, into a very Disappointing game for him. Just 134 yards in the air, threw two picks, fumbled the ball, got sacked three times before he was taken out in the second half. The leader for the USC defense, Talanoa Hufanga, normally a safety, but in this game, Todd Orlando used him more as a linebacker to get more speed out there for USC on D. Led the team with nine tackles, had an interception and a sack, and The big story, too, Nick Figueroa, unheralded defensive lineman, started his career at Cal Poly, went to a JUCO and transferred into USC, three sacks on the day, and Elijah Griffin had an interception as well. What do you think so far about this 4-0 USC team? Well, let's be real now, okay? I think the combined, um, I don't want to throw, you know, cold water on all of your party there, but the combined record of their opponents is two and 12. All right. So let's, <laughs> I do want to point that out, but you're right. It was their best performance. Slovis particularly looked confident. I've never seen him look as confident. And I, and I only saw highlights of the game because uh, I was working, but I did talk a little bit to Petros about it because, you know, we talk uh, every week about what's going on out on the, the PAC 12. And right now in a lot of ways outside your area, the Pac-12 is sort of out of sight, out of mind in a lot of other fans. And I don't think that's necessarily fair, but I think that's the case. We went, Spencer and I, the only Pac-12 game we've done was the Oregon-Washington State game about a month ago. And Delara's a really good player, but he's got a future. I mean, that, that's, that's going to be a really good quarterback. You know, he's a multi-talented, dual-threat quarterback. 
but USC played angry and they got up in his grill and really made the stage, I thought, in the Coliseum too big for the kid. He looked like a freshman. They made him look like a freshman, which I think says a lot about Todd Orlando and the defense and playing with, you know, a Trojan swagger, which is, I think, something your fan base has been wanting to see for a long, long time. So those are all real positives that you take away. The fact that Drake London did not have, you know, the productive game that you would expect, but you still had the five touchdown passes, four of them going, as you mentioned, to St. Brown. That's that's another plus to me. That uh, because I think he's your best talent. I think he's your number one. Totally talent. agree. Totally. Uh, agree. He's the guy that I think ultimately, and especially in the upcoming game with UCLA, you can bet they're going to do everything to take him away. But the fact that you you have other options and those options were utilized, and there's confidence now for Slovis that he can go in that direction, you know, whether it's Vaughn's or St. Brown. So I'm impressed. The issue of running the football can be, I think, statistically, it shows up a lot, usually because of sacks. They need to change that rule. I wish they'd go back to the NFL way of doing things. Sacks should be counted as negative yardage on sacks. College has been screwed up on that forever, and I wish they'd change it. But here's the thing now, and especially in the air raid offense, these little safety valves and swing passes and hitches, wide receiver screens, you know, statistically, that goes in as passing yardage, but it's really a run game. Fans get all up in arms about, gosh, it's third and one, and we're lining up in a shotgun. Why can't we just get behind center and power the ball? That's what a lot of old USC fans, people my age, want to see, all right? And they're not seeing it, and it bothers them. It gets them mad at Coach Helton. Well, sorry, this is a different kind of offense, and you just have to adjust with the times. Most of the yardage on those passing plays are yak yardage. It's yards after the catch. And uh, to me, you could substitute probably a third of the passing yardage and say that's really rushing yardage because the ball is almost a lateral. And, you know, or it may be a little jet sweep, and the, the, but the pitch is forward, so it goes in as passing yardage. So don't get all caught up in that is my point. I'm impressed with SC, even with the Pac-12 suffering, and it is, I think in a lot of ways, the losses by Oregon yep. in the aftermath of the Wazoo win that they got have hurt the league's image. And without question, right when you're beginning to think, well, Washington's defense looks really good, and they get torched by Stanford, you know, that's just bad PR for the league. But USC is what's left. And uh, I think that you hang your hat on that and you hope that they can take care of business against, by the way, a really improving UCLA team. This is a dangerous game coming up because Chip's kind of got, you know, he's got a better offensive line. He's got more of his guys in there than he used to have. So I think we're going to have a really entertaining uh, game out there this week. But for the conference's sake, uh, the Trojans really need to win because it could give oh. you a little something. It could give you a little something to kind of hold your your head up with at the end of the year and say, "Yeah, look, maybe you, maybe you." Can you imagine the off season where uh, USC may be back? I mean, you can have that narrative if they win out. I mean, you can actually have that narrative, which I think the Pac-12 really needs. 
Yeah, I mean, the Pac-12 was setting up their schedule, everything to have an unbeaten Oregon and an unbeaten USC, having played six games each for yeah. a Pac-12 title game, and yeah. maybe a 7-0 and Pac-12 champion could maybe, if everything fell right, sneak right. into the college football playoff. Obviously, that's yeah. not happening. We're just right. playing for a New Year's Six Bowl bid at this point. Right. But, right. yes, it would be good if the power of the West Coast, traditionally USC, mm-hmm can finish it off and at least give the Pac-12 a little bit something. I mean, the Pac-12 bowl affiliations, all those bowls seem to be dropping by the wayside too. They are down to, I think, maybe three bowl games left that they have affiliations to. So it's going nuts here. In one of them one of them's in my hometown, by the way. That's right. The Independence Bowl in my hometown. And Army is on the other side, by the way. Army's already, they're committed, they're coming. It's the Radiant Technologies uh Independence Bowl in my hometown. I believe the Pac-12 is this year going to be the uh, the other side of that. We'll see who it is. You are correct. And yeah, we are going to see because it looks like the Pac-12 is going to get shut out of a lot of their bowls. But the other thing you brought up about people's feelings toward head coach Clay Helton, I run <laughs> a Helton hot seat scale poll on Twitter after every game. I started yeah. it last year when I started up the USC football show for Believe and then continuing it this year just to get a yeah. pulse on how the Trojan fans feel. And I rank it in chili peppers. I don't know how familiar you are with the <laughs> Scoville heat units, but the Carolina Reaper, the hottest pepper in the world, over 2 right. million Scoville heat units. And then ghost pepper, which is a little over a million. Habanero, which is at 350,000. And then cayenne at 50,000. So that's the ranking of the four peppers. And let just people vote, see what happens. This week's vote after the big win, only two of those peppers got votes. Carolina Reaper, the hottest, and Cayenne, the least yeah, spicy on the list. If it had to be anything, it would have to be Cayenne. So yeah. it was 50-50 between those two. <laughs> after the Utah game, Ghost Pepper had won in the first couple of weeks, Carolina Reaper. So it just goes to show that, obviously, based on how SC is doing, you would think it'd be maybe Cayenne or Habanero, but yeah. there are still yeah. some strong feelings about Clay Helton. But let's be honest, he's not going anywhere with USC doing well this season and it being mm. a pandemic-shortened year. They're going to keep him around and see what he can do next year in what is hopefully going to be a full season. Yeah, and by the way, get you a, a quality back, you know, a Ronald Jones kind of back. Uh, the last time I had USC, he could run. I mean, he was a big-time back. And if you have something like that to go with the passing game in the air raid, you don't have to have a ton of them. You don't have to have like three or four, but just one difference maker, you know, in the backfield could make a huge difference for USC. And that's the thing. I think they have good running backs with Malapai, Step, Carr, and Kristen. The problem is that they want to find a way to get all four into the game. And right. A lot of times well, they I, wind up they, they wind up putting them in slots and they become receivers. I mean that's that's, that's basically what happens. That's some of know? it too. But like just with yeah. when they had Ronald Jones, they always were using other guys as well. I was be right. going crazy like Jones is just <laughs> killing this team and we're gonna yeah. sit him out a whole drive because we gotta right. give the other guy carries like. Come right. on. I mean, yeah. I made the joke yeah. that if Ron Jones was playing at Alabama, he'd have a Heisman Trophy in his trophy <laughs> shelf, you know? But yeah. he plays for USC, and he gets 10 to 15 carries max a game. Whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. But we'll see what happens going forward there. But now let's transition into previewing the big crosstown matchup, the battle for L.A. against the Bruins. And it's going to be at the Rose Bowl this year, obviously, UCLA's home stadium. Chip Kelly, like you mentioned, now in his third year 
at the helm of UCLA. Just a 10-19 and 19 record overall there. Had been 46-7 and 7 in his first run as a college head coach at Oregon from 2009 to 2012. But this year, like you said, signs of maybe turning things around after three and four win seasons his first two years. He's got three wins this year. USC, of course, does lead the all-time series against them and has control of the victory bell after their win last year, which was a ridiculous 52-35 shootout. If you'll recall, Keaton Slovis throwing for a school record 515 yards in that one. It was the first time ever that four Trojans each had 100-plus receiving yards in that game. Michael Pittman Jr., Tyler Vons, Amon Ross St. Brown, and Drake London all over the century mark. And Talanoa Hufanga had a career-high 18 tackles in that one. And on the other side, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, the QB for UCLA, had maybe one of his best games ever in college. He threw for 367, ran for 64, basically kept the Bruins in that game. And two years ago at the Rose Bowl in Chip's first game in this rivalry as a head coach for UCLA, they upset USC 34-27. That was the game where Joshua Kelly ran wild 40 carries the most by any player in the rivalry's history for 289 yards, which was the second most ever allowed by the Trojans in their long history, had a couple of touchdowns. UCLA came back with 13 unanswered in the fourth quarter. Very disappointing game for USC fans, obviously. But this one, a lot on the line for USC as they would clinch the spot in the Pac-12 title game and they would host it if they get this win. And... Obviously, UCLA, like you said, has looked better than they ever have before. They got Dorian Thompson-Robinson back last week. He had sat out mm-hmm. a couple of games because of COVID stuff, and then he came back against ASU, so he's only played in three games this year. But he's been all right, 691 yards, eight touchdowns to just two interceptions, and he's run the ball for 210 and a few TDs there. They're Running game has been great. They're 16th in the country in running over 225 yards a game there. The fifth-year senior running back, Demetric Felton, leads the way, 578 yards and five TDs. But he's also a threat catching the ball. He's got 17 catches over 100 yards on the season there. And they're leading receivers this year. Redshirt sophomore wide receiver Kyle Phillips has 23 catches to lead the team. He had a big game last year against the Trojans, 12 catches and 123 yards at the Coliseum there. And they've got this redshirt sophomore tight end, Greg Dulcich, who leads the team in receiving yards with 312 and getting nearly 20 yards per catch, which is pretty good for a tight end. And what do you expect to see in that battle between the UCLA offense and the USCD? Well, in my opinion, it's going to be a shootout. And the pressure in this game from USC's perspective is going to be on Todd Orlando as the defense coordinator. There is not a better schematic guy to go up against than Chip Kelly. Chip is an incredible play caller. He is a better schematic coach, I think, than just about anybody in the business. The only thing that Chip hasn't had at UCLA is the personnel to match, you know, the scheme and the philosophy. Now, he's accrued a lot more of that talent since I've seen him, and it's been two years. I saw him in year one when they played uh, at Oregon, and I actually I did see him last year too 
at Utah, and they were coming off that incredible win at Wazoo, and they got hammered in that game because Utah had such a great defense. UCLA uh, defensively has issues, and so USC should pretty much get what they want, I think, from an offensive standpoint in this game. The Bruins are going to have to get a lot better on the other side of the ball from a recruiting standpoint uh, in the next few years. Otherwise, I don't think Chip will have a chance to do in Westwood what he did in Oregon. That's the challenge for him. The tight end that you were talking about is a stud, and he is a matchup nightmare for outside linebackers who are forced by matchups to be in a position to have to deal with him when they put multiple people into pass patterns. And the quarterback is just, when he's on, when Dorian is on, he's incredible. I mean, he was a five-star. He's a big-time talent, but he has been fragile. He's been nicked up. In this case, it was COVID that cost him some games, but he's been injury-prone too. I think there also probably was uh, a lack of maturity when he, a couple of years ago when he came in, the whole situation with his dad that everybody probably remembers. And, you know, Chip is uh, Chip. <laughs> he doesn't pull any punches either. So they kind of had to work things out. I really think, now that the key to this game for USC is their defense finding a way to make some big plays, uh, negative plays. UCLA is susceptible to the pass rush. They are susceptible. If they can keep their lanes, there's an old saying in coaching from a defensive standpoint, bracketing. If you can get pressure and bracket a guy like Dorian, you're going to be able to get some negative plays. Now, he'll make his big plays. There'll be a few of those. But if you can match their big plays with negative plays created by your defense, you don't have to get sacks, but affect the quarterback with your pressure and don't allow him to beat you with his legs. Force him to pass the football. And because when he's passing it, they're more susceptible to making some mistakes and you can get some turnovers. I, I think that's going to be the key to the game. If USC doesn't win this game, I think the guy that will be on the hot seat is not going to be Helton. It's going to be Todd Orlando. Because when you're going up against Chip, we're talking about a, a deeper level of scheming from a defensive standpoint. Your play calls defensively and down in distance have got to be spot on. Otherwise, he will carve you apart. So in a lot of ways, this is a coach's game, in my opinion. Uh, a great coach on that day can make a real difference. Chip Kelly, from an offensive standpoint, is a great coach. And if Orlando doesn't match him in terms of his philosophy to offset, you know, what UCLA wants to accomplish with explosive plays. And that's the other thing. Explosive plays. You got to limit that. Explosive plays are running plays that are 15 yards or more and passing plays that are 25 yards or more. UCLA lives on that. So you got to limit that if you're USC, if you want to win this football game. That's To me, that's how this game shapes up. And I do think, you mentioned, what was it, 52-35? Last year at the Coliseum. I see a very similar game. First one to 50 or high 40s, <laughs> you know, 45 or more wins this game. And so, yeah, that could be interesting. On the other side of the ball, the key guys to look at on UCLA's defense, they've got a redshirt junior linebacker, Caleb Johnson, who leads the 
team with four and a half sacks, also has 29 tackles, six of them. He's our most physical player. He's our most physical player. Yep. And then a junior safety, Stefan Blaylock, who leads the team with 34 tackles, also has a pick. And the fifth-year senior defensive lineman, Osa Odigizua, with uh, 26, yeah, 26 tackles, there. six <laughs> tackles for loss, and four sacks. And listen, the Bruins are in the top 20 in the nation in tackles for loss with 39 and 18 sacks as well. So they can get into the backfield. And we've seen USC's offensive line have some issues blocking and protecting Slovis. And that, I think, is going to be a big key on that side of the ball. They need to keep Keaton Slovis clean and away yeah. from getting hit and allow him to find the time to get the ball out to those great Trojan receivers. And I think it would help to have some semblance of a run game in this one so that you can maybe offset a little bit of that pressure that the Bruins are going to try and bring against Keaton Slovis. So do you think the Bruins have enough to disrupt the USC passing game, the air raid offense? Yeah, I think the potential to make some big plays for UCLA, they're they're, going to bring a lot of pressure. You know, they'll blitz from just about anywhere. So, yeah, they want to get Slovis on the ground for sure. But I think USC has the better defense of the two. So if it comes down to, if you're asking me, does a defense making a play, who's going to make the most plays? I'd say it would be USC's defense that would make the most plays. The equalizer here for me, and I like Todd Orlando, worked with him when he was coaching at Texas, was on that staff. Things didn't quite work out for him there at that time but he's he's had great defenses through the years he's got a good reputation but his reputation is going to be it'll be really tested here against chip of all the coaches that a defensive coach has to deal with in that league i don't think there's one that is more cerebral and incredible than chip that's why and i think the reason he took the ucla job was he wanted to prove to people, you know, that he could do it at a place that's maybe not, you know, Eugene, Oregon, where you had this war chest of an arsenal of facilities and, you know, the, the Oregon deal, you know, it, coming to UCLA where it was pretty clear that they didn't have the facilities or necessarily the commitment to college football that Oregon did. I think Chip kind of saw that as a, hey, I can do this even here. You know, he wanted to prove that. And you know what? He's on his way. It's taking a little longer. You know, a lot of times when you take jobs like that, you have to take a few steps back before you can take steps forward. Well, I thought in the first year he did that. I thought they came. UCLA got actually a little bit worse in his first year, you know, and but they, they started to rally a little bit going into last year. And they had some some memorable moments. You know, I think when they got that win at Wazoo, that crazy game, the Pac-12 after dark game that went well into the night. And, uh, you know, he outdueled the Pirate, you know, and the yep. incredible offense that Washington State has. I think they kind of got fuel from that, and it carried over a little bit into this year. It's in the COVID era, it almost equalizes things so that a brilliant tactician like him can be a real difference maker. So other than the quarterback for UCLA, the most valuable commodity they have is Chip Kelly. I mean, really. And I think that in this game, it's more of an offensive versus defensive chess match between he and Orlando. And Todd doesn't have to win that. He just needs to stabilize it, have a, 
a fair fight, a 50-50 fight. Because if you make enough plays with your defense, negative plays against UCLA, and maybe a turnover or two, that equalizes, you know, the fact that they still get 500 or more yards of total offense. Yeah. You know, because UCLA is capable of getting over 700 yards of total offense. They are. A lot of teams are. But UCLA especially is because of what they do and the personnel they have at the skilled positions. I just don't think they're as complete or as physical as SC, and that's the reason I like the Trojans to win the game. And we're going to get into that with the predictions. I just want to quickly note, obviously, <laughs> that a lot of the success in Eugene, a lot of people said, hey, it was that Nike money. Well, UCLA just signed the contract with Nike hey, and Jordan brand to take over their apparel. Yeah, so maybe that Nike yeah. money is coming into Westwood now, too. So yeah. we'll see how that all plays out there. But yeah, yeah, I think that was part of the battle for Chip. You know, that was part of the battle for him was to get UCLA to understand we got to do this or we're not going to be able to get where we want to go. So, you know, he's had to fight through some speed bumps that I think everyone at USC knows UCLA always had. And this is, you know, that that was a very big corporate move, historic corporate move out in Westwood. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to get into it too much. The whole thing with Under (laughs) Armour and that blowing up and everything. But yeah, so they have a new deal there. But yeah, the Nike money he had in Eugene might be trickling down south a little bit for for Chip Kelly. But now (laughs) it's time to put our predictions to the test, Tim Brando. You and I are going to go into this. Let me recap, though, off of last week, how I did against Petros in predicting. Of course, we have Mm -hmm. the players we believe in, who is essentially the Trojan MVP of the game. I chose Drake London. He had a solid game, five catches for 92 yards. Mm -hmm. Didn't really blow up, but he did all right. Petros, unfortunately, took Marquis Step, who only ran for three yards and had a (laughs) 16-yard catch. So I'm going to take the win on that one. Yes, you are. Petros, not allowed to pick a game score and everything because he was calling the game. So I could have taken that in a walkover, and I picked a 34-30 USC win. So I'm not going to take credit for that because they didn't (laughs) cover the spread, and Petros wasn't allowed to make a pick. So I'm not going to take credit for winning that pick because it was a walkover thing. So I'm going to be fair and say, hey, they didn't cover the spread. I thought it would be a closer, (laughs) more competitive game. So I'll take an L there, and Petros obviously couldn't make a pick, so he loses that one. And then in our prop bet, Nara's no doubter, I said both teams would go over 500 plus yards of total offense. I was wrong. Neither team got to 300 yards actually in the game, partly because SC took advantage of short fields to get a bunch of touchdowns. So that's what hurt SC in terms of that. But I thought it'd be a shootout like what you're looking for for this week. Didn't happen. And Petros, I thought he had the safe pick. Petros's prop pick was that the kicker, Parker Lewis, doesn't miss a kick. And he missed a field goal, a 31-yard <laughs> attempt in the third quarter. So that killed that one. Neither of us get a win there. So I add one win to my total on the season against my guests. I now lead 5-2 to two against the guests who have made picks against me. Pete Arbogast, the USC voice on radio. I beat him 2-0. I beat former USC D-lineman Frosty Rucker 2-0. Mike Yam. Formerly of the Pac-12 Network, now at NFL Network, got me 2-0, and then now I got Petros 1-0 in this one. So, Tim, it's going to be you and I now competing for the predictions title for the week, and we'll begin with the players we believe in. For me, I am going to maybe shock you here. I'm going with a defensive player. Drake Jackson, the sophomore, has struggled a little bit, hasn't done a whole lot the last two games. But he's a local kid, Corona Centennial High School, big city rivalry. 
I think he comes to play against the Bruins and has a big day. So I'm going with the player I believe in, Drake Jackson on USC's D. Tim, who do you believe in for USC this week? Well, I'm going to stay with Drake, only it's London. Because, you, I mean, uh, I think that last week he was a little bit of a decoy. And I think now UCLA, seeing what they saw with a stat line that was just off the chart for St. Brown, I think that they'll have to be more honest with the way they defend. And as a result, it's Drake London's game. I think there'll be a lot of opportunities in man coverage, more so than maybe you'd expect from UCLA, which sometimes, because of their personnel, have to play zone. But to get pressure, which is, I think, what they want to do, they're going to bring, I think, more than three. They're going to bring as many as they can to try to get slowness on the ground. That comes with a price. You have to pay the fiddler at some point and put a guy on an island. And I think that's where London absolutely chews up the Bruins secondary. So Timmy B's tips from the T are uh, go with London as your big guy from an offensive standpoint in this game. All right. So we're both picking Drake just on different sides of the ball. (laughs) And now for the game winner and score, I'm going to let you go first here since I went first on the players that we believe in. What do you have for the winner and the score in this one? I think you already kind of tipped your hand a little bit on how the score is going, but let's hear it. Yeah, I did. As usual, I buried the lead. I got ahead on segments. (laughs) Studio producers would have been really upset with me. I said first one to 50, so I'll go ahead and say... Hanging 50 is a must in this game. Trojans will. I'm going to say, and it's going to be a great game. Could be an overtime game. 51-45 Trojans. Wow. 51-45. A high-scoring affair for the Rose Bowl is what Tim Brando's looking at. Just for (laughs) entertainment purposes, letting everyone know that right now, as we record this on a Wednesday, USC is a consensus three-point favorite on the betting line, so you've got them just covering in a big, big scoring game. So you don't want overtime because they might win it by three (laughs) if it goes OT. So you want it to be in regulation, all right? But it could go to overtime. (laughs) So for me, I think it is going to be close. I don't think it's going to be quite as high scoring. I think actually the defenses are going to make some plays And so I'm going to go with USC to win 31-29. I think it could very well come down to a last-minute two-point conversion stop by Mm -hmm. USC's defense, or maybe USC gets a big touchdown late to go ahead and win. But I think it's going to be a really tight game, and so I have it 31-29 USC. So I have SC not covering. Tim does in a high-scoring affair. And now it's time for the always entertaining prop bet where we pick something that's just a random stat or occurrence that will happen in the game that may be irrational, may be crazy, but we feel strongly about. So for me, I call it Nara's No Doubter. And I think in this game, Nara's No Doubter prop bet pick is that at least one touchdown in the game comes from defense or special teams. Could be either side, but I think there's going to be a defensive or special teams touchdown in this game. Tim, what is your pick going to be, and what are you calling it? Huh, I think I'm going to call it the rejection row blocked kicks of the game. Rejection row blocked kicks of the game. I think there'll be two field goal tries 
blocked in this game by the winning team, in this case, USC. Two blocked kicks. UCLA will be forced to try some field goals, and I think they'll get blocked. All right. Which could be your six-point spread right there. So you're going to call it Tim Brando's rejection row blocked kicks. Right. And you're saying USC will block two UCLA kicks in this game. Right. That is a bold prop bet prediction. (laughs) Well, I'm nothing if not bold. There you go. Tim Brando bringing the heat for the prop bet choice. So to recap our choices, the players we believe in, I am going with sophomore Drake Jackson on USC's D. Tim Brando going with sophomore Drake London on USC's O for the score of the game. I'm going 31-29, a close game for USC pulling it out. And Tim Brando going high scoring, 51-45 USC. And for our prop bets, Nara's no doubter is that at least one touchdown in the game will be scored on defense or special teams. Meanwhile, Tim Brando's rejection row blocked kicks is going to be that USC will have two blocked kicks in this game. So. We'll see how all of that turns out. Of course, you are listening to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Nara Wang. My special guest this week is Fox Sports play-by-play man and a longtime broadcaster of so many different events throughout his career, Tim Brando. Of course, you can find the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast. You can subscribe and rate on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and more. Or go to the website, Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com on social media, at Believe Podcasts. For me, reach out to me on Twitter, at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Tim Brando, where do the people find you on social media? At Tim Brando on Twitter, and Timmy B on Fox on Instagram. How do you do, everyone? This is Pete Arbogast, the voice of the USC Trojans. It's actual football season in 2020. Can you believe it? Believe it. See how I weave that in there? You're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. And before I let you go, I know that you have some very strong opinions about the college football playoff system. I want you to get it out there. And then I've got a proposal of my own. I'd love to hear what you think of it. But you have the floor, Tim Brando. College football playoff system, go. It sucks. It sucks (laughs) out loud. And it has uh, since the beginning. You know, I've said this for years, going all the way back to my days at ESPN as the original host of College Game Day, which was, by the way, in 1987. You know, there are generations of fans out there that don't know that I I was actually the original host of that show with Lee Corso and Pino Cook. I said it then, and I still say it. College football has the best regular season and the worst postseason in organized sport in America. It's been that way forever, as long as I've been alive. However, as bad as it was when I was a kid, New Year's Day used to matter. And uh, we could wake up on January 1 thinking four or five different teams might win the national championship. None of them playing one another, but they all had a chance. The move towards the BCS to get the Pac-12 and the Big Ten together and play and participate with an opportunity to play either an ACC or a Big Ten or SEC team was great. I mean, that was wonderful. We used computers and we had a criteria, and it gave teams like Boise State a real chance. Boise State 
had a chance if they'd made a field goal a couple of times to crack the system. You know, the USC Texas game in 05 is probably the height of that moment, one of the greatest games ever played. But it still was exclusionary. With the college football playoff, it's become even more exclusionary. Teams like Coastal Carolina and Cincinnati have no chance now. No chance. There is no criteria. It's a beauty pageant every week. And I don't have any trust whatsoever in this committee. And brand names rule. And the Sun Belt rules. And we're getting the same cobble of four or five teams every year. If I can tell you in the summer that it's going to be Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, either a second SEC team or Notre Dame every year, then why bother? And most of America is saying that. College football needs to open its doors to champions in all parts of our country. We have no geographical consistency in college football. Pac-12 is basically out of the picture most years. That's wrong. You know, there are a lot of people that live out there. That's terrible. We should have the winners of the Power Five leagues all participating. We should have two at-larges, and we should have one group of five team every year in an eight-team playoff. And I, and I say, bring college football's biggest games back to the campuses. Let's let the opening round, listen to this, the regular season means more if your seeds one, two, three, and four, and you get to play the first round at home, okay, against teams five, six, seven, and eight. One plays eight, two plays seven, three plays six, four plays five. And then the next week, we go back into the, the bowl system for the semifinals and the finals. It has to be done now, Nara, and I think it will be done for financial reasons, if nothing else. We're hemorrhaging money after COVID. How do you get more money from television? Inventory. What does inventory do? It brings greater advertising dollars and revenue. And what does college football need? More revenue. So I think it'll happen, and it needs to happen sooner rather than later. I like what you're saying, and I totally agree. And I think the core of this issue is that like you mentioned at the very beginning, there's no czar, there's no commissioner of college football. The NCAA, which is supposed to run things, just lets the conferences do what they want individually mm -hmm. with college football. They have no control mm -hmm. over the playoff system in college right. football. So the issue here is that you have these traditional bowls, which garner a lot of money, and that's where these conferences are deriving a lot of this revenue from. And so you have this what some people would call an antiquated bowl system in place, when in reality, everyone who talks about, oh, you know, we want to have a playoff, we want to have a playoff, that's great. But like these lower divisions, they don't have this bowl system to deal with. They don't have a Rose Bowl, Orange Bowl, Fiesta Bowl, Sugar Bowl that control the money in college football. So here's my idea. Tell me what you think about it. I've had this idea since I was a kid, since junior high, when I was a young college football <laughs> sports fan. It's basically a system where the bowls can matter, and you're still going to get a playoff system. So my idea is this. Go back to the traditional bowl tie-ins. So the Rose Bowl will always have the Big Ten and Pac-12 champion. As of now, you're going to have the Fiesta Bowl getting the Big 12 champion, the Orange Bowl gets the ACC champ, and the Sugar Bowl gets the SEC champion. So every year, that's locked in. That makes all four of those bowl games have a conference champion, which again... 
I think a lot of people care about because sometimes you're going to see an argument where, oh, like Texas A&M this year may not even go play for a conference title, but they could sneak into the playoff if things go their way with other results. So this way, you have those games locked in. You can match up with those other three bowl games where there's not two teams already tied in with the other good at-large teams, the best group of five team. If Notre Dame goes back to being independent, if BYU goes crazy and has a great year, whatever. Mm -hmm. Match up four great bowl games. So now, like you mentioned back in the old days, all these games were on January 1st. Everyone would be watching. There'd be great matchups. Now, people care about the semifinal games and then the other New Year's Six bowl games are like, mm-hmm. eh, whatever. Most of the time, right. unless it's a Big Ten, Pac-12 Rose Bowl, no one really cares that much about it. And they tend mm-hmm. to not be great matchups. So this way, you're going to get great matchups in all four of those bowl games. And then after that, Pull out four teams. Doesn't necessarily have to be the four winners, but have your committee pick out the four best teams out of those bowl games and have a four-team playoff. And people are going to say, oh, well, that extends the season. Yeah, one extra week in January for the biggest sport in college athletics. What's the big deal for that? For power schools that are going to have kids playing and doing this stuff anyway. So that's my idea. Go back to have the traditional bowl tie-ins and then do the playoff off of that. So then everyone wins to me in that. Your idea is a great one, Nara. I'm fine with it. The only difference between our ideas are that the pushback when you say expansion is always going to be, well, you're just diminishing the regular season. (laughs) It's a joke. It's a horrible rebuttal, but that's what we get. Okay. With my idea, I'm able to shoot back to that argument. Wait a minute. If we're talking about enhancing the regular season, what if the debate isn't just about teams five, six, seven, and eight getting in, but it's about home field advantage for the opening round? Now we're making the regular season even more important in terms of finishing in the top four. So there's a healthy debate about the top four. We've got a different debate about five, six, seven, and eight, which of course will bring in potential nine, 10, 11, 12 teams saying, Gosh, we're trying to get in, which which enhances interest all across the country in those regular season games. So that's the only difference that you and I have. Your point would enhance those bowl games that are now just glorified exhibitions. So I get that. And that's a wonderful thing. But my point is college football is at its best when the campus environment is involved. And we've really taken the campus environment away and made it more of a corporate look in the postseason. At least if we did the first round at home sites, then we would be bringing that, you know, you wouldn't have to worry about a potential meaningless matchup. Anytime it's played on a campus, it's rah-rah, sis, boom-bah, going to be fantastic TV and a great deal of interest. But if they did it, if we changed it the way you want it changed, I would be just as happy. So – I think we've uh, struck an accord here. Yeah, and I agree with you. If they expand the playoff to make it like an eight-team, the first rounds have to be at home sites. That, to me, is the only thing that makes sense for the top four seeds. And then with mine, I still think the regular season means something because you got to win your conference then. Absolutely. You have to win your conference, and if you don't, then – you know, you're left to fight for one or two possible at-large spots. I will be the first to call you and congratulate you if they go with your idea rather than mine. Let's just expand this thing. Agreed. And make college football. College football is the second most popular sport in America 
on Saturdays. It gets the next best ratings to the NFL. Now, there's a lot of separation, yes, but it's the number two sport in America. And yet, because of this convoluted, aristocratic, condescending system, okay, that looks down at its nose at Cinderella and says, I'm sorry, Coastal Carolina. We don't care how much you did last week. You still have no shot, okay? We need to fix that, and we need to fix it right away. And America will love it, absolutely love it. College football has become so predictable that the networks that carry, and this is true at my network and it's true at ESPN, who has the rights to the national championship race, okay? Turn on those networks, whether it's ESPN, any of their networks, or FS1 during the week. Do you hear any conversation about college football? Really? I don't. I don't. It's not part of the, we have no 19th hole, no water cooler conversation at all. It's regurgitated NBA and NFL dribble every day because college football, you can sum it up in like a two and a half minute segment. Okay, it's going to be Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and then it's going to be the uh, second place SEC team or Notre Dame. That's who it's going to be every stinking year. That's got to change. Yeah. And this year, I mean, we could easily see a scenario where you have two SEC teams and two ACC teams because Notre Dame is technically a part of the ACC for this year. Right, and that could right. be your four-team playoff. Oh, that, and by, trust me, that's Ohio State fans' biggest worry this week. Yeah. What if Florida beats Alabama? Oh, my God. You know, it doesn't matter what's going to happen with Clemson and Notre Dame. Those two are going to be in unless there's a blowout. And I don't think there's going to be a blowout. So <laughs> Ohio State is sitting there going, Oh, my God, what if Florida beats Alabama? We are so screwed. <laughs> and yeah. they are. They yeah. absolutely are. Hey, listen, if I don't get named czar of college football, I'm going <laughs> to nominate you, Tim Brando, to be uh, the czar of college you, football. <laughs> <laughs> and so on a little bit of a somber note, I would be remiss not to mention the fact that we lost a Trojan great this past week. Marv Marinovich, who was a two-way lineman for USC back in 1959 and 1961 and 62 seasons. He was the captain of that undefeated 1962 team that won the national championship and beat Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl. He played briefly for the Oakland Raiders in the NFL before becoming a well-known strength and conditioning coach. Of course, he's most well-known for his development of his son, Todd, the quote-unquote robo-QB who was developed from a very early age to be a quarterback, ended up playing for USC as well. Another son, Mikhail, played defensive end at Syracuse. Marv Marinovich dying of natural causes in Mission Viejo, California at the age of 81. Do you have any stories or any interactions from Marv Marinovich in your past? I met him when I came out years ago to do a story and um, very congenial and enjoyable guy to be around. I saw right away why there were defenders for Marv when the stories came out, especially a lot of his teammates, you know, that knew him as a player because he was an engaging gentleman to me. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the parents of players. I always have because uh, I have daughters and I've always shuddered to think and I, what it would have been like if I'd had a son, how hard it would have been because I'm a type A and uh, it's easier when you have daughters. I think, to be a parent, especially when you're in sports like I am. They get a little bit of grief because of what their daddy says on TV or whatever. 
but it's not that big of a deal. And if I happen to miss one of their recitals or I happen to miss, you know, I was always here for homecoming, you know, when my daughters were in the homecoming court, but I didn't have to worry about missing games because of what I was doing. So I've been married 42 years with two daughters and uh, in February we'll have a fourth grandchild. So the family thing is important to me. And Marv Marinovich to me was um, in so many respects misunderstood by those that never really got a chance to meet him. If you met him, you understood his passion and where he was coming from. And I thought Todd, to his credit, as uh, messed up as that situation got for him as a result of his dad's being a daddy dearest, if you will, you know, the, the perception was he was a daddy dearest that pushed and pushed and pushed and that the young man didn't get a chance to be a kid, which affected him later in life you know, as a pro, I thought the fact that Todd, as he went through rehabilitation, found his way back to his father to understand where his dad was coming from. That's the thing I I believe I want to remember most about Marv. In a lot of ways, he had to bear the emblem of the worst possible stereotype of a father son relationship in athletics. He had to endure that, okay, for years. And he did so. But his son, in the end, and let's face it, in the end, we always say this, family is what matters most, right? Right. And Todd, even with all his issues, found a way to come to grips with and have an understanding of why his dad was the way he was. And to me, that's the best result that you could have possibly hoped for. And you know, I pray for the Marinovich family and for, you know, Todd moving forward and so happy that he was able to find his way in his journey back to Marv. And again, my, my meeting with him was fleeting, but it was one of those stop and talk deals yeah. for about five to 10 minutes. And it was uh, compelling. I could tell the man was, um, you know, good when you see good, when you meet it. I've always felt that way. And, um, you know, I, I whenever I heard someone really going off on the Marinoviches, I would stop and say, hey, <laughs> listen, unless you're there, you really don't know. And there are so many examples of people that come from dysfunction in all forms of life. Sadly, when you're in sports and you've got a kid that's that well-known and you're playing in college football, particularly at that time in our country, their dysfunction was more visible to everyone. But it was not terribly uncommon. You know, it happened in a lot of places. So thoughts and prayers with all of them. And I will tell you that my brief engagement with Marv and obviously some of his teammates, I got to know and worked with a few of them, you know, in his day. So I wish the Marinoviches all the best and uh, pray for um, for Marv uh, and his soul as uh, he moves on. Yes, our condolences go out to the Marinovich family, Marv Marinovich, passing away at the age of 81. Well, Tim, on a more positive note, I had a hell of a time talking college football, <laughs> USC football with you today. Enjoy it. And I got to get you back on maybe during basketball season, talk some hoops with you. Let's give it a go. I look forward to it, Nara. And as I said to you beforehand, uh, if ever there's a time that you need um, a helping hand along the journey, please feel free to give me a buzz. I'm here for you. 
I appreciate it. So, for my guest, Tim Brando, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode 18 of the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with the show for every team in L.A. and so much more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And as I end every show, please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.